0: On today's episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Joshua Ferris and Dr. Ryan Brandt about the beatific vision. It's our very first double episode where we talk to two different people at the same time, and we cover all sorts of topics related to the beatific vision, uh, considering what is it, uh, its confessional status, how does it relate to Baptist thought and life. And both Dr. Brandt and and Dr. Ferris are writing a joint project book on the beatific vision, so I think you're really going to enjoy it. And as always, if you have thoughts, about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can email us at contact at the London Lyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Oh, and just one quick note about Joshua's audio quality throughout the episode. At points, you may notice it's not perfect, and we do want to apologize for that. We endeavor to have perfect audio quality all the time, but it's just one of the challenges of interviewing amazing guests all across the world. So you probably won't even notice, but for those podcast junkies who may, we did want to let you know.
1: Anyway, here's the episode.
0: I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak.
1: And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew.
0: And we're a podcast that hopes to encourage deep and clear thinking, uh, especially when it revolves around theological issues. And today, I'm really looking forward to introducing you to two guests. Uh, one we've had on in the past, you've heard Dr. Joshua Ferris. Uh, another, Our other guest you haven't heard yet, which is Dr. Ryan Brandt. Um, I'm really looking forward to the topic that they're going to go over today. So they're going to talk with us about the beatific vision. And I think we're going to look especially at the beatific vision and Baptist and reformed thought, but we're going to look at the topic altogether. Uh, I think it's a fascinating topic. They've got a book coming out on it. I have no idea when they can tell us when it's coming out. Um, so before we get into that, I'll let you guys introduce uh, yourselves. Uh, Dr. Ferris, I guess you can start since you've been on the show before. You can give us 30 seconds on who you are and why you got interested in the topic, maybe. And then we'll kick it over to Ryan. Uh,
2: yeah. Well, uh, I'm Joshua Ferris, and I am the Chester and Margaret Pollock Professor at Mundelein Seminary right now and uh, teaching, uh, lecturing part-time at uh, Auburn University, Montgomery, and um, as, as well as a couple other places. Um uh so yeah um so I got into the beatific vision I guess through anthropology I started thinking about it when I started thinking about anthropology so um obviously this becomes a prominent pretty prominent theme in my uh, recent uh, introduction to theological anthropology where beatific vision serves as a kind of organizing principle in the whole um in the whole book and the way that I conceive of uh, a theology of of the human being and I think that's uh, in various ways that's uh, consistent with uh, the the wider tradition and the way that it um, articulates both the, the 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 purpose and the nature of, of of humanity and so in conversation with Ryan Brandt um, we just kind of fit he's really interested in spiritual formation um, he's also interested in in the nature of uh, moral theology and uh, that was really compatible and fitting with my interests in philosophical theology as well as in anthropology in specific. And so we, we started working on this book um, where we're in effect, putting forward uh, a theology of, of beatific vision from a broadly reformed and evangelical perspective where we think it's really needed right now. Um, So, yeah, anyway, we can talk about that more, but uh, that's just a brief introduction on me and my relationship to the vision and to to Ryan.
0: So, Ryan, why don't you tell us about yourself? Uh, For those who listening who have no idea who you are, uh, give us a little context.
3: Yeah, my name is Ryan Brandt. I'm a professor uh, over at Grand Canyon University, which is in Phoenix. Um, I'm also an editor of a journal. Um, I've got, I got into the beatific vision through several different kind of connecting uh, means. One of them just being uh, astronomy as a 12 year old, I would take out a telescope, look out at the stars. I I just was kind of became obsessed with um, seeing beautiful things in the heavens. Um, Over time when I, when I got more interested in theology, this obviously connects. Um, And that uh, was uh, further increased by a desire to connect theology to spiritual life, uh, spiritual formation, soul care, as they sometimes call it. Um, and the beatific vision is seen as the end of, human, uh, of all humans um, uh, in which they see God. And it it's becomes the endpoint of, of human beings and thus connects to your everyday life um and seeing and being changed into that which we should be as truly human so all this kind of uh just and then also connecting with that becoming much more uh catholic lowercase c baptist but very i i don't know when this was but becoming interested in um, the church's tradition and good old fashioned theology. And then just rediscovering, oh yeah, everyone talks about this. (laughs) So it all kind of came together there.
1: Cool. So can, can you guys maybe take a few, one of you take a few minutes to talk about the different views of what the, you've kind of given us a basic definition, but the different views of the beatific vision. So I was raised in a Southern Baptist church and, I can say that I heard the phrase beatific vision a grand total of zero times my entire life uh, (laughs) until seminary. So this is going to be a topic that I think a lot of our listeners don't have much of a foundation uh, on. So maybe just what are some some views and then what are Baptist views of it? Yeah, well, um, uh,
2: we find various types of this vision in in Scripture. We can think of lots of different examples in Scripture from uh, uh, Moses seeing Mm -hmm. the um, uh, seeing God, uh, seeing the back of God, we see um, this uh, analogy of the ladder to heaven, um, where we we see God in his pristine state, in the heavenly state. And this, uh, arguably, this reality somehow permeates our earthly reality. And so all these types that exist in the world are um, intended by God, at least, to be um, types that point us to uh, the to God and His heavenly realities um, that we ultimately see in the divine human Christ, who perfectly reveals God to us, um, both theologically and scripturally, uh, actually goes in hand in hand with these other metaphors like um, love, uh, where uh, we see God in the context of love. It's uh, situated in the metaphor of communion, sight, hearing, as well as life, and so there's this uh, there's this important theological theme in the Reformed tradition of hearing. hearing the gospel. By hearing the Gospel, we come to, to know and have the capacity to see God in, um, in the work, the person and work of, of Jesus Christ. So, um, uh, there's some key or paradigmatic passages that we could point to, like 1 John 3, 2, when we know that um, uh, when, when He appears, we will be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. So the beatific vision in some way in that passage pretty clearly points us to um, or is the cause for the final purpose of all humanity. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13.12 is another passage that talks about how now we see a a, a shadow, but uh, we await the perfection that we will see. And all of this is oriented in the context of love. Um, So a working definition that... um, we just recently came up with, uh, Ryan and I, and uh, the working definition is this. Um, the beatific vision is experiencing intellectually and ocularly what we are not, so as to become what we are not yet. So playing off of this common Christological definition, in, um, especially in the patristic period uh, concerning salvation, um, uh, where it says something like this, God became man so that we might become gods or a god, and then it helps us to see and develop practice of spiritual formation or soul care, which uh, Ryan can talk about further. But in brief, um, there are, in the literature right now, there are, well, you might say there's at least these two different views. There's the intellectual beatific vision, which says that the the vision is primarily um, uh, a matter of intellectually seeing God or seeing the very forms of God. That uh, in this life, we don't see, we don't comprehend the nature of God. Um, We only see him, again, through a
3: shadow. Um,
2: We see him hazily.
3: That's a good good start. You said quite a bit. Um, So, yeah, it brings up all kinds of questions. And uh, since the question was about different views of the vision throughout history, Um, And within the Reformed tradition in particular, Um, there's several different debates we could mention. One, um, Joshua already mentioned, is the uh, intellect uh, view, the immaterial, is the beatific vision us gazing upon the essence of God, or is it a physical ocular gazing upon the face of God and Jesus Christ? Um, So that's one, and you'll get representatives of each of those views in the Reformed tradition. It's often some sort of combination, though, is what we found. Somebody like John Owen is going to be much more focused on seeing God in the face of Jesus. Um, Somebody like Francis Turretin is following Thomas here. That is, it's an intellectual gaze upon the essence of God itself. Um, that doesn't mean just to, um, clarify a lot of, uh, this discussion, if it's new to an audience, it can be misunderstood quickly. That doesn't mean that you become God himself. That doesn't mean you take on the divine nature. Uh, it means that you become a participant in God and do take on various qualities mm. of God, like his love, his righteousness, like right? Justification. Um, his immortality, his incorruptibility. These aren't creaturely qualities. These are God's qualities. Um, So the debate between intellectual versus ocular brings us to um, another debate about what exactly the vision is most primarily getting at. Uh, According to Francis Turretin, uh, there's some debate about is it primarily the intellect that the beatific vision is concerned with, or is it the will, uh, love? Um, And Francis is going to say both and, which is the typical uh, reformed answer. Somebody like Jonathan Edwards, um, well, he might prioritize the will, but they're they're not going to make that division as much. But that's an ongoing debate, intellect versus will. And then also, and maybe finally, and we can, uh, Joshua, if you think of another one, you can mention it, Um, But the debate about where exactly, what state, I should say, what state the vision takes place in, um, it's a little hazy when you read different theology books. Is it the intermediate state? um, Right after bodily death, your soul gazes upon God's essence. Um, That would be Thomas. I think that's the common view. I think that's the, the main view. But it's, uh, sometimes the priority is, um, is that it actually takes place in the resurrected state in an even greater sense. Uh, obviously, John Owen would have to hold to that uh, in some sense. But it brings up the question, is your immaterial, is your disembodied soul in the in- intermediate state? Not so much gazing upon God's essence, is it gazing upon the resurrected Jesus in the place of heaven there as well? And Jonathan Edwards would say yes uh, to that. Uh, so you can see how it's, it's a really fun, this is a fun thing to think about. It, it, it reminds you of your hope. Uh, it's really good news, but it's also just, it can be really confusing. There's so many different mm. options. That lays out quite a few of them. Is there anything else you'd want to add, Josh? Let me just
2: add this um, by way of background or preface. Um, It seems to me that um, in our contemporary setting amongst evangelicals and Baptists, this doctrine might be lost on them in some ways. Um, Well, there's a variety of reasons why that might be. But um, I'm quite disappointed in the fact that I'm so um, disenchanted, I guess, um, with with the world around me. And uh, in many ways I I realize, I know this as a Christian, that I'm not seeing the world rightly. Um, So I'm thinking of, for example, uh, um, uh, Pannenberg, Wolfhard Pannenberg, when he started out in his, his, uh, his uh, conversion experience, he was raised in a secular family and not unbelieving family, but at some point in his uh, teen years, I can't remember exact what, what age Ryan can probably uh, recall this, but during his teen years, he he just um, after some, I think it was after a piano recital or something. He he was actually um, walking around outside, and something hit him, and he just had this this um, this overwhelming sense of the divine in the creation around him. And upon reflection, that's what he says led him to, or was his conversion experience. And um, I think with. With the right sort of eyes that uh, uh, we as Christians have or will have, uh, we can see the whole world uh, rightly in light of who God is, and uh, it certainly it certainly um, makes a difference uh, compared to our sort of unredeemed states where everything at times can be rather blah and and um, to use a a trendy sort of phrase disenchanted um, where am I getting that from by the way there somebody uses uh, use that word enchanted Is it Charles Taylor, yeah, Charles Taylor Charles. uses yeah. that a lot yeah um, but you know what I'm saying yeah I think it's a helpful way to think about it um, so that was a little long-winded so there we go
3: carry on yeah. no that, that connects well with what I wanted to say um, because it When I mentioned the connection between spiritual formation, sanctification, um, glorification in the Christian life and the beatific vision, that was probably hazy. So Josh Josh just touched on the connection between the vision and our gazing now. And that's a really important one that's often overlooked. But uh, Augustine in On Christian Doctrine arguably sets up that whole book And certainly wants you to see the Christian life in that way, that all things are created by God to be signs of God. They all point back to God and they're meant to do that. Food, uh, trees, uh, beavers, humans, of course, that all things are created by God to reflect him. And all these little signs are pointing forward and towards uh, the thing itself, which, of course, is God. And when we enjoy, he uses this word technically, when we enjoy these created signs, instead of God himself, we're missing the point. We've lost our way. We've, we're lost in this world, loving the world for its own sake instead of for the sake of, that, of him who created it. And so the beatific vision here becomes a centerpiece, not just of Christian theology, but the Christian life. Um, Any time that you've ever just been really, you, you were longing to see somebody's face, you were longing to see them again, and then you see them again. And, and that feeling you get, that's a, that's a type of the sight of God uh, for eternity. Um, that's, by the way, what we call contemplation. When, you, uh, when you're, the best definition of contemplation is, is just to describe it. it it's, it's just when you're awestruck. When you look at something and you're almost lost for words and you're just enjoying it, contemplation, uh, to go back to the different metaphors, isn't just visual. This is, uh, you can apply this to any of the senses. When you taste something particularly delicious and you're like, ah, yeah, this is the sign. This is a sign of the new heavens and new earth. This is the eternal wedding banquet, right? Or you see something and you're reminded, oh, man, what, how, how beautiful is God, beauty itself, you know, that sort of idea. So. I think Augustine, later Christians, including many, all the ones we've mentioned, they're building a tapestry of t- uh, tying the world and all created objects and our sight of this world with God, its source and its end. And so the beatific vision isn't, it, it, it kind of sounds funny. It's maybe not very familiar, but it's something very intuitive. When you tell a child uh, you know what's heaven or they ask what he- is heaven like and you say, "Well, what's your favorite thing to do?" it's kind of like that all the time, as Augustine might answer, of course, with your hopes and and your um all your longings redirected towards God and not that sign. Um, so it's it's so vastly important, but it, it, it's it's explanatory too for really all of Christian life.
1: I wanted to ask you about how how this whole idea fits in with uh, creeds and confessions. So, do we have any creeds that? or confessions that specifically speak to the beatific vision and do they give us a definition? Do they say, um, this is what it, it can mean. This is what it it can't mean. Um, do we have any examples of that in church history? Uh,
2: yeah, let, let me, let me just say a couple of things and then you can, um, as we're writing the book, I haven't finished it. This question is actually, um, this has actually helped us to, um, think a little bit more clearly historically about the vision, and so it's a good question. Um, when we approach um, the doctrine of beatific vision within the context of dogmatic theology, it's clear that a dogmatic theology um, begins with the doctrine of God and then moves quickly into the doctrine of God in relation to his creation, in particular his human creation, and that certainly uh, that comes out quite clearly. In, um, John Webster's thought, and I think in many ways he's in many ways he's just doing good old classical dogmatic theology. This is pretty common throughout uh, much of uh, church history. Uh, ho- however, there isn't there isn't really um, a clear um, creedal statement on the beatific vision, even though it seems to be like all over the place pre modern, um, and it seems to. Uh, permeate um, the, uh, the historical and dogmatic context in which the creedal um, statements are formulated. Um, because as, as Hans Boris argues in his book Sacramental Tapestry, all of the, the or most of the pre-moderns were working or functioning in this sort of sacramental view of the world. So that's just part and parcel of the metaphysical context in which the creeds are formulated and how we understand the nature of God and the relation that human creatures as embodied souls have to to God. Um, But that said, there are lots and lots of confessional statements um, that that do have some things to say about the beatific vision in particular. And um, we could point, obviously, to the Roman Catholic Catechism, um, but being good Baptists and Reformed um, theologians, we won't do that. Um, but there are several reform confessions as well as even Baptist confessions, um, that, that, um, that do uh, talk about the beatific vision specifically. And, uh, I'll let, um, I'll let Ryan talk about those. Yeah.
3: So, um, while not explicit, the Belgic confession certainly is moving in that direction. Um, it doesn't actually use the imagery of sight so much, as I mentioned. That's an interconnected metaphor, so that's okay. So I'm going to just move to the second London because that's the that's the confession that's most explicit that we 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 found. Um, Uh, By the way, we haven't written this chapter yet, so uh, we were scrambling a little bit for this, but um, it uses the language of beholding the face of God in light and glory, and that's as um, explicit and direct as we came across uh, so far. Uh, You don't get any more. It's, It's obviously a reference to the beatific vision, but not surprisingly, it doesn't spell out what exactly that would mean. It doesn't really spell out anything. Light and glory, glory is telling because that's getting at God's revelation to us, God's light to us, which is the vision, God's presentation of himself to us. That's fundamentally what the vision is. Um, In glory, which of course can, that that, that word's maybe even broader and that can be taken in a lot of different directions. But maybe what's so surprising is the next clause, waiting for the full redemption of our bodies. So in other words, it's coming down on the intermediate state there. That in the intermediate state, we are beholding the face of God in light and glory. Now they're going to be taking this, given what the theologians who are writing this confession, given their position on it, they're going to be taking, um, beholding God's face um, as an analogy here, a metaphor here uh, for a direct perception and knowledge of God, because God doesn't have a face, except in Christ, as Owen is going to add. Um, so uh, that's a, that, that was the telling connection that we made. I think there is a obvious reference in the Belgic Confession that the second London would be the clearest one there.
0: That's interesting. I did not know, did not realize that, that they were the clearest of all of them. Um, One question I have that I think Joshua brought up, and I think you kind of touched on it too, Ryan, um, on this idea of deification and how that necessarily fits with the beatific vision, because it seems like, um, at least from what I've read, which is not a ton, but especially in Jonathan Edwards stuff, there's a lot of fear that he goes in this, I guess, you know, deifying way. And it's a lot linked with this idea of the beatific vision. So I guess first is deification legitimately a bad thing or what are they trying to say with that? And how does that link um, up with the beatific vision of the same thing? Or is it just depending on the tradition you're in, you're using different terminology?
3: Yeah, the way um, at least I like to see it, and I think Josh is the same here, is some sort of causal link between the vision and deification, Um, given scripture, given the dogmatic tradition here, um, referencing John uh, in in, in 1 John 3, um, talking about God's appearance. When when he appears, uh, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This idea of seeing God and uh, as sort of a way into our transformation into him, as far as our creaturely capacity can bear, of course. Um, now, exactly how this works, a lot of people I know. Kyle Strobel, for example, wants to do some work on this. Josh and I are going to be doing work on this. How exactly does seeing something lead to the transformation? Is an excellent question. Uh, we can I can address that certainly. But before we get there, I want to uh, maybe touch on something more foundational, and then I'll let Josh talk to really help address what deification is. The Puritans really like to use this analogy for how deification works. They like to see God in in this analogy as um, fire and humanity as iron. Uh, When you heat up iron in a really hot fire, obviously that iron, it smelts, it, it, it liquefies. It's still iron but it's raised in its capacities in some ways it's becoming like the fire. Uh, So this analogy shows, well, what's happening in deification um, is the idea that we become like God. We take on some of his capacities, but we're remaining human. We're just now glorified humans as the language is more familiar to us in that way, glorified, or what they would just call deified humans. Uh, And what they mean is raised to the highest capacity in Christ, that in Christ, the God man, humanity and God are united and humanity gets raised with God, not becoming God's nature, but it gets a cooler, some cooler attributes. Think about in the gospels when Jesus is like, there's some mysterious stuff going on. Yes, he's eating fish, but is he like walking through walls and stuff? Uh, Jesus is walking on water before that. That probably shouldn't surprise us much. Why? Because that's the new humanity in Christ. Not because it's ours. It's because it's his. Uh, So the Puritans love this analogy of of, uh, fire and iron. Again, we don't become fire, but we take on some of fire's properties, God's properties.
0: That makes sense. So maybe you can help me here. What I know you've mentioned Hans Boersma and his book on the beatific vision. I've read maybe the first couple chapters. I haven't finished it yet. Um, what is your contribution in comparison to him? Because I think some of our listeners who are more familiar with this topic um, are going to ask that question. So those who have no idea about the topic, not going to ask that. But those who are, why should they be checking out your book? What are you bringing to the table that's not in that one?
3: Yeah, you can think of her book, at least the plan, and I think this will definitely be working out something like this way. Um, the uh, Think of it as being in four sections. The first section setting the stage for why the vision's overlooked today. The second section showing a biblical theology of the vision which I'm really excited about. Um, It's really easy to do, but no one's really done it. Uh, Three, the third section is a historical theology of it, uh, especially focusing, I think, on medieval and reformed theologies, because that's where they get the most explicit about all these ideas we're talking about. And then the last section, some, um, think of it as a construction, constructive section tying it to god anthropology and spiritual formation so our book's trying to do um a little bit of everything especially the constructive part where borsma's is mostly historical and then he works constructively from there uh but no it's a great book it's one of my favorite books in the last five years
2: well so hans borsma's books uh entitled seeing god is um uh, he's he's really doing a lot of great work to really introduce um, the beatific vision into the broader contemporary theological uh, discussions, and uh, so that's very helpful. His work is also very historical in that he is working um, fairly historically through uh, various uh, various uh, theologians on the vision, and. Um, so that's very helpful. Ours is different in that um, uh, for one, we're explicitly working within a reform context, but we're, our, our, our aims and interests are, are more constructive and contemporary in nature. Uh, so I would say that would be the biggest difference between us and, and Hans Borsman's book uh, or what we intend. Um, furthermore, uh, there There are a couple of other uh, distinctions uh, one is um, one of the ways we intend to apply the vision in a in a more contemporary way is by applying it to anthropology and spiritual formation, both of our our uh, our interests and specialties so um, which makes sense right so um, um, what that also means is that the book will be um, Informed a bit more by some of the analytic philosophical literature. Um, Borsmo is not really an analytic theologian, nor would he call himself that. So he's not working within some of those um, or working with some of those conceptual categories or from that literature. So that will certainly inform um, the nature of the book as well.
1: I'm curious about your research. So is there anything as you've been doing all this research that you found and you were like, wow, I was not expecting to find that, whether it be from the historical theology or maybe how easy it was to do the biblical theology section or what was it that you you were not expecting to find that you found once you really, you know, sank your teeth into this project?
3: For me, uh, I was shocked just how, normal the beatific vision is historically um, in reformed and baptistic theology. I, I think the latter, I think baptistic, that really surprised me. It's, it's there all along. Benjamin Keech talks about this. This is a big thing. Andrew Fuller, Charles Spurgeon, uh, regularly, regularly. Um, and while they sometimes won't use the words because, you know, words can be Confusing. Uh, Deification, especially, they often won't use that word, but the concept is identical to what Thomas is talking about. Um, Or at least it's very close. Uh, So so that I think that was the biggest surprise to me. Um, If you want to kind of feel some of my surprise, you can look at a um, our two volume. The second volume is coming out like right now, a journal called Pericuresis. Um, and we, we go over Baptistic and Reformed uh, theologies of the vision and theosis in it, or deification. And there's a lot of articles in there. It's, it's, it's very clear how established it is in, 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 those worlds. But I just didn't know that. I wasn't told that.
2: I don't have anything really to add other than, other than I, I'm surprised at how amiss it is in, in, in many of the evangelical theologies yeah. that are. Contemporary evangelical theologies that are on offer. It's just not there. It's not a, a prominent informing category. That's all.
0: Yeah. Got it. So before we let you guys go, I think I've got a twofold question, and maybe you both can answer it yourselves. Uh, first, what other resources would you recommend listeners? engaging on this if they're interested maybe uh, something that's really bite-sized easy for the beginner and then something that's maybe more challenging for someone who's further along the path and then the second question is I know dr. Ferris has given us uh, the fact that he's got a website at some point in the future I think um, but if you have places where people can go to find your work to follow along with what you're doing uh, tell us that too
3: or oh, you want me to go first I've been going first I didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, I think uh in, in the first volume, Josh and I have an introduction of the vision and theosis. Um so this is 2019 perichoresis. It's open access, so you can just Google our names and then Google uh beatific vision and theosis. It'll be the first thing that comes up, a PDF. Um that is pretty entry-level. Where we cover some scriptural uh, survey, a theological reading of it as well, and an historical, a really quick historical survey from the Reformed and I think medieval standpoint. Um, that would be a great place to go, and then um, read the articles, especially in the second volume. I'm really excited about the contributions being made in uh, this second volume coming out this month. Uh, hopefully, right, Josh?
2: Yeah, it should be out this month sometime
3: cool uh there's there's a couple of great contributions if you if you want to read an evangelical retriever of theosis Luke stamps it, his article I believe is the last one and it's fantastic if, if, if that doctrine's confusing you I can't remember how entry level it was but I'll just mention those two Josh you have anything else? Yeah.
2: No, I think that covers it. I mean, <clears throat> you can find some of our work on uh, Ac- the Academia website. And uh, Ryan, you're on Academia as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you can find some of the works there. And um, yeah, I think you covered it um, with the uh, second issue. Yeah, it should be out shortly. And there's a great set of um, set of articles there, Luke Stamps in particular, but also Carl Mosier's uh, work on um, where he he touches on Calvin quite a bit. John Calvin.
0: Yep. That sounds really good. I'm looking forward to it now myself. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I love open access. Yeah, me too. I I love that so many journals are moving that way. Um, It's, I think it's really great for just overall research and being able to disseminate it to lots of different people. So cool on that. Um, Brandon, did you have anything else before we wrap up? Nope. Awesome. Well, we want to, you guys, a huge thanks for both of you coming on. Yeah, thank this you is guys. The First time we've ever done two guests at once, and I think it was pretty cool. Oh really? So
3: okay. Must be natural.
0: Yeah, you guys are the guinea pigs, um, <laughs> or or if you want to call it, you know, like I guess the the forerunners or something, something <laughs> cooler where you're like spearheading everything. Anyway, uh, thank you for coming on the show. I think this was really fo- informative, really helpful. Uh, I encourage all listeners to check out those resources, and especially whenever your book comes out. Uh, we will promote that. Whenever that comes out, we'll promote it and make sure that people know that it's getting out there, and that they should get a copy of it. Um, so thanks for for doing this. And for those who've been listening, uh, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast that exists. And we thank you for tuning in.
2: What's so special about Hero Bread soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas?